a famine, uh, some, some brethren, some other believers who have been impacted by the famine. So he has taken up a collection. You'll, you'll see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll see in Romans 15 that Paul has been gathering this, uh, this aid package, if you will, for those who are suffering in Jerusalem. So he wants to take them some relief. But he also not only wants to relieve their suffering, but Paul also wants to foster unity through this offering. Because you've got to remember that um, Jews and Gentiles, Paul's been ministering uh, to Gentile, Gentile regions, and many people have been coming to Christ. But Jews and Gentiles have a long history of animosity toward one another. And Paul is hoping that this act of grace would serve to demolish this, the long-standing barriers between these two groups. So Paul hopes um, that the Jewish brethren would see the kindness and love that the Gentile brethren have for them. And, uh, and likewise, uh, Paul puts it upon the Gentile believers saying, listen, you owe, the, you owe your salvation to the Jews because salvation is from the Jews. And so he's trying to show these two uh, groups that, are, that have some animosity between them that there's no reason to, to uh, fear or be suspicious of one another. After all, old wounds and prejudices are not easily overcome. But they can be conquered, and Paul is, is seeking to overcome some of these um, prejudicial barriers between these two groups. So now we're going to be seeing Paul leaving Asia and coming back um, to Jerusalem um, with this offering, and we're going to look at that trip today. So just a, a few points in regards to uh, where we're going to go today. Um, there are a number of really important themes uh, that we see in our text today, and I'm not going to hit them all, but let me just point out some of the important themes um, that are uh, evident here. The, the first one, we should notice that Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul is compelled. He says, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me read what Paul says. That would probably be better. In Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 22, Paul says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul is going to Jerusalem. He understands the difficulties wait, await him, but he's being compelled or constrained or, or uh, really just pushed along by the Holy Spirit. As you read this passage of text, uh, you, you might pick up that there's, Luke seems to almost be drawing this parallel between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Paul's journey to Jerusalem. When Jesus um, set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, knowing that the cross awaited him. And so Paul also, constrained by the Holy Spirit, sets his focus on Jerusalem, knowing that afflictions await him. I believe that this is intentional. Luke does this on purpose. This is part of Luke's um, history of the church. He puts... Paul forth as this model disciple. And, um, he is putting Paul forth as the one, as one who follows Christ no matter where he leads. So there's a lot to learn here about discipleship. Paul is going to Jerusalem. He is obeying the will of God 
even though he knows that it results in imprisonment for him. He understands Jesus' words well. If you want to be my disciple, you must lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow after me. A disciple, Jesus said, is not greater than his teacher. Paul seems to understand that, and Luke is drawing this out, not just to say, oh, that's for Paul to do, but Paul is set forth as an example of all disciples, that we follow Christ even if it means the cross. Paul follows Christ even when Christ goes to the cross. Remember, when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow after me, where was he going? He was going to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to a garden party. So, this is Paul. Paul's destination is affliction. Now Paul is going to be the missionary in chains. His calling remains, but his circumstances have been altered. So I don't normally draw an application in a preview, but let me just draw an application in this preview. Our journey may look completely different from Paul's. In other words, we may not go to Jerusalem But regardless of where the Lord leads and how many voices seek to dissuade us to follow, we are called to follow Christ where he leads us. I think it's superstitious for us to say, well, you know, if something bad happens to me, it must not have been God's will. Or if something good happens to me, then it must be God's will. That's just pure superstition. There's nothing in the scripture that says pleasant results equal God's leading and uncomfortable results must mean God's disapproval. Paul is following Christ. He doesn't care where Christ leads him. He says, I'm a servant of Christ. He even says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Wherever God will lead me, that's where I go. This is set forth to us as a model of what a disciple does. So that's our first uh, theme that we're going to see um, in this text. um, And I'm not going to elaborate any more on it other than what I've just done. But there's another theme that I think um, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time with today. In fact, the bulk of my message today is on this second aspect, and that is the family of God. Here we see the family of God. More specifically, what we see is that foes become family. Former foes become family. And so I won't spend much more time there because I'm going to elaborate on that. Former enemies are reconciled to Christ and to others. And then we will see just a little bit about the will of God. And we taught a whole class on Sunday morning about knowing the will of God. Um, And I'll talk just a little bit about that, but you'll see um, that as one of the themes. So let's uh, follow along with me as I read our text. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. Listen to God's holy word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to coast. And the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were... There were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. 
and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went to Jerusalem, and some disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Well, we have uh, this basically a travel log, if you will, and it is a journey uh, from Miletus all the way down to Caesarea. So, um, for those of you here today, um, I've got this up on the screen. If you're, if you're uh, at home, uh, hopefully you can download the map of Paul's third missionary journey. But we're up here in, in Miletus, and, and Paul travels down here to coast, to Rhodes, over here to Patara, and all the way across the ocean. This probably took, uh, uh, we learn uh, that this takes about five days if the weather's good. And they arrive here at Sidon. Um, and... One of the things, I, I, I'm sorry, Tyre, and one of the things that we, we want to point out is they go to Tyre, and what do they do? They meet with the brethren. Then they sail down here to Ptolemaeus, and what do they do there? They meet with the brethren. Then they go down to, Ces- to uh, Caesarea, and what do they do there? Meet with the brethren. And then they basically make their way up to Jerusalem, and what do they do there? They meet with the brethren. So you can see... Um, Paul's journey and Paul's focus is always to meet with the family of God. Wherever he goes, he searches out the family of God and meets with them. I want to focus really right now, I want to focus on this journey to Tyre. Um, It's interesting that Paul arrives in Tyre and he searches out the disciples. He finds... um, It says um, they sought out the disciples and they stayed in Tyre for seven days. In other words, a church exists in Tyre. But, but what's interesting is that Paul did not plant the church in Tyre. He was not the, the founder of that church. So that tells us a number of different things. Um, it tells us that other people were planting churches, not just Paul. Um, and, and we actually know when the church in Tyre was founded. In fact, we know this because Acts chapter 11, verse 19, gives us um, a clue as to uh, 
the church entire being founded. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So they went to Phoenicia. Tyre is in Phoenicia. So the church has its founding in the scattering of disciples from Jerusalem during a time of persecution. You'll recall that the Jerusalem church um, was experiencing great growth and then persecution broke out. Persecution broke out um, really over... Uh, it broke out from... It came from the Jews and it was persecuting the church. Now, the thing we want to note here is... Not so much what the persecution was, but caused a lot of people to scatter and go all throughout. And basically, it brought about the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the, the earth. The church was not doing that. They were staying local in one place. But God brings persecution and it scatters them. And they take the gospel even to a place like Tyre and plant a church. What we want to ask is, what was the cause of that persecution? Why was the person, what caused the persecution? Or better yet, who caused the persecution? The answer to that is a young Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus was ravaging the church and scattered men and women across the empire. People packed up, left their homes. People packed up, forsook their businesses. People left and fled for their lives from Saul of Tarsus. And now, Paul, the apostle, formerly Saul of Tarsus, walks into this church and their brothers. What an amazing thing. This man who sought their death now seeks their edification. These people who feared this man now call him brother. The one who sought their death now seeks their fellowship. The, one who, the ones who feared his presence are now going to grieve the fact that he's going to depart from them. Folks, this is a great picture of reconciliation not only to Christ, but one another. When Christ reconciles us, he reconciles us to himself, but he reconciles us to one another as well. Despite past sins, despite the fact that Paul had sinned against these individuals, maybe not all of them personally, certainly their parents, 20 years has passed basically. There's about a 20 year time, time span between these two events. So certainly some of the people were those who lost their businesses, lost their homes, forsook their friends, picked up and left because Paul was ravaging the church. And now Paul walks in and they have fellowship together. This is the result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at how, in verse 5 how they seem to love one another. Verse 5, when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us till we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. They didn't want to see Paul leave. They walked him to the ship. And they prayed with one another. 
The one who used to hate us and the one we used to fear is now our brother. And let's pray for one another. What incredible love comes about through the forgiveness that is found in Christ. I do want to bring up kind of a a side issue here that um, isn't a main part of this message, but it's something we should probably deal with because people ask this question, and you're probably going to ask me after church about this anyway, so let's just go ahead and, and deal with some of these issues. And, and the big issue here is that, um, that, that the disciples in Tyre, it says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And that brings us to a bit of a challenge. And the challenge is present because we just read in chapter 20 that the Spirit was constraining Paul to go to Jerusalem, and now we have these disciples through the Spirit telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So, it's a tough one. So, how do we address this? Well, we can address it in a couple of different ways. First of all, we should address it by noting what is clear. Always when you end up with a difficult passage of text, go to what we know. What do we know? What is clear? Here's what's clear. God does not contradict God. All right? So that's clear. So we know that the Holy Spirit does not give mixed messages. He doesn't say, go to church. No, don't go to church. I think there are a lot of different ways that people have addressed this, but I think the easiest and perhaps probably I think the best way, oftentimes the easiest is the best way. The solution basically is, a, is that the Holy Spirit is affirming what is awaiting Paul and in love the disciples urge him to not go. In other words, they also know that persecution and imprisonment awaits Paul. And they are urging him not to go. So perhaps they also understand uh, what the Spirit is saying, but they bring about perhaps a, a different application. And so they understand what's going to happen to Paul. They understand that he's going to suffer. They understand that their friend is going to be in prison. They understand this. So note what they do. After seven days, these former strangers who are now family are concerned about Paul, and so they pray for Paul. I think in this way, they aid Paul to face the challenges that God has for him, has awaiting him. Well, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, if that's where the Spirit is going, here's how we can help you. We're going to pray with you that you would be strong in the face of persecution. Folks, the bottom line is every single one of us has challenges. The life of the believer is not one of constant ease, and we need to be strengthened. One of the ways that brethren strengthens one another is imparted through prayer for one another. And so here we have these people who were formerly foes. They are now family, and they are praying for Paul to have the strength to do what God has called him to do. What great friends. What great brothers. What a great family. We wish you would stay here, but if you're going to do what you believe this is what God has called you to do, then we are going to pray that God gives you the strength to do what you need to do.
They then sail off and they sail down to Ptolemais. And again, we meet the brothers there. And then they come to Caesarea and to the house of Philip. And here in Acts chapter 21, Philip is described or he is described as Philip the Evangelist. But this isn't the first time we've seen Philip, right? We've already seen Philip earlier in the book of Acts. Um, in Acts chapter 8, we learn um, of Philip's powerful ministry in Samaria where he's preaching the gospel. Um, great signs and wonders are taking place by him. He's dealing with um, false teachers, uh, with uh, Simon the sorcerer, and he has this vibrant and powerful ministry going on in Samaria. And then God interrupts that ministry and says, I want you to go down into the middle of nowhere. And you're going to find an Ethiopian ruler and he's going to be traveling. And I want you to jump on board and share the gospel with him. And so. Philip travels down basically out of away from this thriving ministry out to the middle of nowhere and he finds this Ethiopian official who's on his way home from a festival in Jerusalem and he shares the gospel. The, uh, the Ethiopian receives Christ, is saved, is baptized, takes the gospel back to Ethiopia um, and we say this in, and, then, and then in Acts chapter 8 verse 40 it says and then he continued to minister and he wound up he continued to minister and until he came to Caesarea. So Philip then settles here in Caesarea. About 20 years has intervened since the time that Philip had this vibrant public um, high-profile ministry. And for 20 years, We've heard nothing about Philip. In this 20 years, though, Philip has been blessed with a family. It is a family that has been faithful to the Lord. He has four daughters and they're prophetesses. They, they speak the word of God. He has stayed in one place. He does not have this high-profile ministry, but he is faithful to his church, to his city, and his family. And I just want to draw a little contrast. Paul um, has this high-profile ministry. We all know what Paul does. But Philip has no less a ministry in staying in a single city, raising his family to be godly and loving the church in his city. What a great ministry. So we see Philip as the evangelist. But there's another description of Philip. Philip was one of the seven. And Paul stayed with Philip, one of the seven. You'll recall the seven, they're mentioned in Acts chapter 6. You'll recall when the task became uh, so great uh, of feeding those who were in need and that, that there was a dispute, dispute between the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows. And the disciples, the apostles said, listen, we need to get seven men who are filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to make sure that everybody's getting the fair distribution of food or money or whatever is necessary to take care of the needs. But we, the apostles, will give our attention to prayer and the word. And so they chose seven men. Philip was one of those seven. You remember who else was one of those seven? A man named Stephen. Stephen was murdered. 
Stephen gave one of the great sermons of all time and he was murdered for his faith in Christ. And the man who participated at least by approval in the murder of Philip's co-laborer and friend is now sitting in his house as a brother in Christ. This is an amazing thing. Philip co-labored with Stephen in vital, vibrant ministry and Saul of Tarsus gave a hearty approval to murder his friend and co-laborer. And now Philip says, come into my house, brother. Why? The gospel of Christ has reconciled them to one, to both reconciled them to Christ and now reconciled them to one another. You are now a brother in Christ. This is an amazing thing. I think when I read this, the first time I read this passage, the first probably ten times I read this passage, I'm, what am I going to do? This is just a travel log. This is just saying Paul went here and Paul went there. But this is one of those hidden gems that I think only comes about the fact through careful reading over and over and over again. Paul goes to Tyre and meets with people whom he once chased out of town. And they're like, brother. Then he goes down to Philip and Philip's like, you murdered one of my co-laborers or you gave approval to it when you were young. And now Christ has saved you, saved you, and now you're my brother in Christ. Welcome into my home. Meet my family. Have dinner with us. Then we see also he goes to the home of a man by the name of Manasin, and we don't know really anything about Manasin except what is told for us here. And here what we learn about him is that he was an early disciple. An early disciple. Certainly he knew about Saul of Tarsus and how Saul of Tarsus ravaged the church. And now Manasin says, come, brother, stay with me. I'm sure he experienced Saul's hostility towards Christians and now he receives Paul. Folks, just a couple of quick applications. We are not only reconciled to Christ. Sometimes we think of our Christian faith, well now that that um, that animosity that existed between me and God has been cut, has been has been uh, salved, it's been it's been dealt with. The gap, the, the, the chasm between me and God has now been bridged. And that's true. We rejoice in that. But Christ not only reconciles us to himself, but he reconciles us to one another. And this is global. We were enemies of God, but God makes us family by adoption. Paul the oppressor comes to those he oppressed in the name of Christ and he has received his family. Rivals are reconciled by destroying barriers, not by removing differences. Jews and Gentiles were still different. They still ate different, dressed different, talked different, had different customs. Paul's not interested in changing those differences. He's saying the barriers that exist between us 
are now been removed in Jesus Christ. The pain that I inflicted upon you has been forgiven by Christ and forgiven also by one another. I want to read a, uh, a rather lengthy story that I think might be helpful in this. And so bear with me as I read this account. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown belt, felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God, cast them into the deepest oceans, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. And in silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform, a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our homes during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp when we were, where we were sent. And now he is in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are in the bottom of the sea. And I, who spoke so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook. Rather than take that hand, he would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt... It was the first time since my release I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from you, your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, a hand came out. Will you forgive me? And there I stood, I whose sins had every day been forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I knew it not only as a commandment of God to forgive him, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Harlem for victims for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. No matter what the physical scars, those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. 
And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the stretched out one to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang to our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive this hardest of situations, I never again had the difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but I can't. If there's one thing I've learned in 80, at, the 80 years of, at 80 years of age is that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but I can only draw on them fresh from God every day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way for every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside, but at last I asked God again to work his miracle in me. And again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision and then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father. Then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, hashing over the whole affair again? My friends, I thought, people I loved. If it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, though it's all forgiven, help me do it. But the next night I woke up again. They talked so sweetly. Never a hint of what they were planning. And his help, God's help, came in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. He said this, up in the church tower, he said, nodding to the window is a bell, which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell continues swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bells slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversation. And yet God had much to teach me even in this single episode, because many years later, in 1970, an American with whom I had shared the ding-dong principle came to visit me in Holland and met the people involved in, who betrayed me. And he said, aren't those the friends who let you down? He asked as they left my apartment. Yes, I said a little smugly. You can see it's all forgiven. But you, yes. But what about them? Have they accepted your forgiveness? They say there's nothing to forgive. They deny it ever happened, but I can prove it. I went eagerly to my desk. I, gave, I have it in black and white. I saved all of their letters, and I can show you even more where they did these things. Corey, my friend, slipped his arm through mine and gently closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? And are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? 
For an anguishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered at last, who takes all my sins away, forgive me for preserving all these years the evidence against others. Give me grace to burn all the black and whites as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. I did not go to sleep that night until I'd gone through my desk and pulled out those letters, curling now with age, and fed them into my little coal-burning grate. As the flames leaped and glowed, so did my heart. Forgive us our trespasses, Jesus taught us to pray, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And in the ashes of those letters, I was seeing yet another facet of his mercy. What more he would teach me about forgiveness in the days ahead, I didn't know. But tonight's news was good enough. When we bring our sins to Jesus, he not only forgives them, he makes them as if they had never been. Enemies made friends, no doubt not friends, family by reconciliation with Christ. And so, as we conclude this message, let me just bring up that Christ reconciles us to not only to himself, but to one another. Past injustices do not permit us to reject one who now professes Christ. Forgiveness is hard. Perhaps it is the trial that God has called you to. Forgiveness is hard. It's really hard. Perhaps that's the Jerusalem that Christ is sending you right now. You need to go there. So I'm going to ask that as we sing our final song that if you need prayer to forgive somebody or be forgiven um, want to keep our distance but maybe just kind of come towards the front and at the end of our final song we will pray with you and for you um, and seek the Lord's reconciliation let's